But today, we're going to be, again, concluding also our 40 days of prayer. And I couldn't pick a better passage in which to conclude our 40 days of prayer. In fact, when we outlined the dates of it, it was intentionally to finish on this Sunday because we find in this chapter one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible without exaggeration. Because in this chapter, we hear God himself speak about himself. It's already a big deal to hear God speak in a book in which the first two chapters have told us on fast forward, a period of 400 years have taken place in which God's people have been desperate for him to speak. And have, so far as they know, only been met with silence. To hear God speak, to break the silence, is already a big deal. But already in this passage, it stands out like a shining light, like this burning bush we're going to be reading about in the rest of the Bible. For here we hear God's own name, a God who names himself. But I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. In fact, there's just too much in this passage for us to cover in deep detail. So we're going to cover instead just two things this morning, specifically about our God. And they are first, the God who shows himself. And number two, the God who names himself. The God who shows himself and the God who names himself. Are you ready? I hope, again, you'll be looking at these verses with me, including some of the verses we have not yet read together. And I would hope that after the service, one of the best things you could do is to go back and reflect on this passage, to read it by yourself. Uh, again, we have these bookmarks that are out on that table that give you the outline of what passages will be preached for this whole series so that you can study this passage before you even come on a Sunday morning. In fact, I encourage you to ask somebody before you leave today, again, what is something that God showed you in his word today? What would, what did you need to hear? What was encouraging, convicting? What questions did it leave you with still? And I'm, and I, trust me, there are plenty that this passage will leave us with. But let's look first at the God who shows himself. Now, our passage picks up with a man named Moses. Now, we're not going to go back into everything we've looked at in Moses' life, but the last thing we learn from Moses who will be and is, some, is very famous for being the rescuer of God's people, the one who announced to Pharaoh, let my people go, and then does bring them through, again, not only the plagues, but through the Red Sea, and, and brings them again to the foot of this mountain to deliver the Ten Commandments. None of that's taken place yet. The last thing we've heard is that Moses had fled as a massive failure into the desert, never expecting to return back to Egypt again. Here, on the backside of the wilderness, we find Moses 40 years later. Yes, that means he's probably at the age of 80. And I think some of us can empathize who will maybe in our 80s here today. I don't know if we're looking to be interrupted like Moses was, or the kind of career chain, let, change he, let alone he's going to suggest. But on the backside of the wilderness, in the footsteps of Mount Horeb, still perhaps weeks away from his home in Midian, God is pursuing him. In the most unlikely place on earth. The verses themselves are captivating. And I want to read them because we've not gotten a chance yet to, to do so. These first few verses, chap chapter 3, verse 2 through 4. Again, look at these verses with me, if you would, in your Bible or on the screen. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. 
verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Growing up, I used to play uh, this game as a kid called Ghosts in the Graveyard. Anybody know what this game is? How do kids come up with the names of of these games? It's so creepy, terrifying, Ghosts in the Graveyard. But it's basically hide and seek uh, in the dark, where one person is hiding and everyone else is looking for them. And a a really uh, mean-spirited person who plays this game, if they're hiding, it looks for every opportunity just to scare the living daylights out of whoever is coming past them. Now this game, again... Um, is, uh, again, as, even as a child, it makes me think of how many think of God today. I know it sounds strange, but many of us are accustomed to seeing God, um, well, if he exists at all in our imagination, he is mostly unknowable, hidden out there somewhere in the dark, waiting to scare us or surprise us. Perhaps we might be lucky enough to stumble upon him, but that's really the only hope we have for actually knowing God at all, is to stumble upon him in the dark. In fact, one of the oldest metaphors that we get of, about God or about the universe comes from India. Uh, it's thousands of years old, this metaphor for God's existence, and I wonder if you've heard it today. It's very popular. Of several blind men, men who stumble upon an elephant for the very first time. None have ever encountered an elephant, and they're struggling to describe it. One's feeling the tusk, one's feeling the trunk, one's feeling the ear, and they're all trying to describe this new creature based on what they feel, what's in front of them. They say it's like a tree, or it's like a, like a, uh, like a fan, or it's like a, uh, a leaf, or whatever, or a big tall brush, ba- uh, based on whatever part of the elephant is there. That's, that limits how they're able to perceive the giant creature. And so the, the, uh, the point of all of this, again, is that their descriptions are limited and very different from one another. And actually, they, and depending on some versions of the story, they end up in a great fight after who's right. Supposedly humbling those who would cha- claim an objective perspective on God. Saying that maybe this is what experiencing God is like. All of us, meaning all the different religions of the world, are simply feeling different parts of the elephant. We're actually describing the same thing, but from different perspectives. Is this what God is like? Like stumbling upon an elephant in the dark. Hoping your version of him is right, but having no real confidence of it. This is actually what most people in the ancient Near East, when these Uh, when the Israelites lived, this is what they were accustomed to from their gods. The gods of the ancient Near East, including the Egyptians, were largely unknowable. It was guesswork to know what they wanted, expected, and so you would go to great lengths, hoping you could appease their appetites and their ever-changing desires. Is this what God is like? In some sense, we have to say that what comes in the coming verses All that we learn about God, one of the things that stands out about God, actually, is how mysterious this God is. In fact, I think many of us walk away with perhaps more questions about God than we came with, if we're reading it closely. It's one of the things that draws Moses in, actually. If you notice in verse 3, he says, again, I will turn and see this great sight, or in some translations it says something like strange or marvelous sight, what draws Him to God's presence is the mystery, the strangeness of it all. It's not like, though, and this is where it's different than that metaphor, 
or how many would see God, again, as a stumbling upon him in the dark. It's not as if the bush here in the wilderness has been burning for thousands of years. It's not as if God is saying, man, I really picked a terrible place to reveal myself. I really hope somebody just stumbles upon me someday. No, the whole thing actually reads much like the last two chapters have. That this is part of the purposes and plan of an infinitely sovereign God in perfect control over the events of history, even as human beings think and will and act. We have a God who has got his, steer, his hand on the steering wheel. Somehow, again, in the background, steering things with precise intention up to this very moment when Moses stumbles upon an appearance of the living God at Horeb. In other words, as mysterious as God is, he is not merely waiting for us to find him in the dark. No, in fact, it, the, the reality is that unless God chose to reveal himself, we would actually never find him in the dark. We would never learn anything about him at all. Unless God himself would speak and speak clearly about who he is, he would never be found, and God knows it. The incredible truth, though, is that God has. God has spoken. He has revealed himself. Now, what God does reveal, he does, again, with careful intention. He doesn't reveal every detail of his plans and purposes, let alone his nature. And what he reveals may not answer every question. We hope it will. But if he is God, and he is speaking about himself, then he would be the greatest expert on the matter, wouldn't he? What he has said would trump all of our assumptions and our best guesses and our theories. What more reliable source could you go about God than to God himself? And if there is one that is more of an expert on him than he is, then I think he would stop being God in the first place. We often also have to say that what God does reveal here about himself is very, very strange, isn't it? After all, think of all of the ways that God could have shown himself. Why, of all things, in a bush on fire? We need to say that the image of fire actually will be, from this moment forward, actually prior to this too, bound up with the presence of God and his character. I wish I could go through all of the examples we find throughout scripture, and we're going to see more of them in Exodus with a pillar of fire and as the fire descends upon the mountain, let alone from in Genesis or in Revelation, where fire again and again is associated with the presence and power of God. There's something about fire, you see, that is, that gets at the unique and the mind-blowing nature of God himself. But what exactly? We're going to get into it in, in just a little bit, if we're patient, about what I think this reveals about God, about what it pictures. But I have to tell you, even before we get there, I'm not entirely sure all that it means. I think even in this, as Moses is writing these events after having experienced them himself, I think he would say he doesn't fully understand these events which he saw firsthand. Which again gets to the mystery of it all. What draws Moses in is the mystery of God. The mystery of his glory. The myster mystery God never fully explains for us. What Moses is seeing here is a peak. 
a peek behind the curtain of the very fabric of our world. Gregory of Nyssa, and who wrote in the fourth century, says that what Moses saw in the burning bush was nothing less than the transcendent essence and cause of the universe on which everything depends, alone and alone subsists, on which everything depends and alone subsists. In other words, what God is giving Moses a glimpse of is of realities beyond the world that we know. Not just beyond the world that we know, but beyond even human comprehension and imagination. Realities that that defy, I should say, explanation and comprehension and imagination and philosophy. Realities that are burning forth from the very throne of God himself. And even what Moses sees here is only a rough translation of the actual thing. After all, did you notice that it tells us, it doesn't just say that God appeared in this bush. What does it say? An angel of the Lord. That is what has appeared here. What's going on, I think, what this is telling us is, again, that God's nature is so ultimately beyond our comprehension The Bible will describe, in fact, God as invisible, meaning that our senses aren't designed to break him down. His presence can only then be perceived and seen by accommodating accommodating himself to something physical, something created through a messenger, which is what angels are. The best description I can give of this, or summary, is a bit like being on a video call. Anybody frustrated by too many video calls these days? How much of those become part of the reality? Only a video call that's on a terrible connection. You ever been there? Grainy and distorted. Consistently buffering. Only limited pictures and sound quality. All grainy again and pixelated coming through. You could say, technically you are hearing and seeing something of the other person on the the other side. But it's only something. Here it's as if God himself is making a zoom call through the bush. For a few brief moments, our incomprehensible God made himself comprehensible. And even what comes through is a shock to Moses' own imagination. The incredible truth is that, again, not, not just that God has not left us searching in the dark, but again, God knows that we would never find him and cares enough about us And about being known by us that he takes the initiative to speak. And when he speaks, he speaks clearly. He doesn't just interrupt us as he does with Moses. I want us to notice he draws us near. After all, notice, again, Moses doesn't just turn aside. But when he does, what does God do? He calls out to him. It's the first words, Moses. Moses. Did you notice that? Scholars, again, that repetition twice, they call that the, this isn't just, again, him trying to get his attention as if he didn't want Moses to walk away. This was a repetition of what scholars call a, of endearment. What does that mean? It's kind of reputation, a a a repetition a, a parent has for a dear child. Like when I come home from work and come through that front door and call out for my toddler, hey, Lucy, Lucy, only hear the thump, 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 as she runs up and I grab her into my arms. It's a, it's a sign of, of dearness, of desire to be with my child. It's, 
And again, I, I know this might be a surprise to you, but God's basic posture towards his people is not irritation and indifference. It's of a father calling his children close. But then almost as quickly as Moses draws in, God stops him in his tracks. Verse 5, and then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Let me give you another illustration. My family will tell you I, I geek out a little bit too much. I get too excited uh, about building a fire in our fireplace. It's like, especially during winter, there's something I just feel so accomplished when I built it from like, like the little matchsticks to a full blazing fire. And they're like, yeah, yeah, dad, we get it, okay? But nonetheless, I love, uh, again, something about it, maybe it's a Boy Scout in me, I find it to be fascinating, uh, especially when I lock it up and it's, it's, uh, it's burning inside our cast iron fireplace. And when you, the fire's really going, going and you see the coiling and the rippling of the flames, it's, it's impossible to, I mean, you just have to describe it as a beautiful thing. It's mesmerizing. Why do we, again, light fires in a fireplace and not just the heat and warmth, but something about it is beautiful. I think all of us know, though, that fire is a dangerous thing as well. After all, the more a fire is going, the brighter it is, the hotter it is, and the more it is in your self-interest to stand back. My home state, after all, in Colorado, was just decimated by wildfires, as wildfires consumed everything in their path, including some of the places that I grew up going to. Do you think anyone was hanging around those wildfires, enjoying the view? Perhaps one of the things going on in this image, a picture of the light and heat of God's holiness, something that is not merely, as Alec Moiter would point out, it's not merely a passive attribute, but an active force, embracing all that conforms to it and destroying all that offends. It turns out that here in Exodus 3 is the first time we find the word holy connected to God himself, used in reference to God. And even as it is not a term we so often use, except for when we're trying to make fun of someone, especially when we call someone a holier-than-thou person. Do you want to be called that? I hope not. We don't use the term very often, but holy in the Bible is perhaps the closest thing that we have to an, ad an adjective for God, to describing what God is like. His godness. We describe him as being holy. The word means something like separate or set apart or unique. Referring to the fact that God, as great of lengths as he will go to reveal himself and to draw near to us, God is still different than us. Separate from us in a fundamental way. First, because he is God, after all, and we will never be. But second, and we're going to consider that more in a second, because he is pure, he is spotless. He is sinless. He is, the, he is all that is good and beautiful and true, bound up in one. Again, as Alec Moitier points it, God's holiness destroys all that offends. And the second reason we are, again, God's, God is holy, is in contrast to those whose basic posture is of rejection and rebellion. 
later in his life, perhaps thinking of this event, Moses will, after all, describe God this way. In chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, verse 24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Again, who would want here to be described as jealous? But the Bible actually has a lot of important meaning in the term for jealous. It means something that, like God longs for and deserves the love that we all owe him. Similar to uh, my wife Grace, it's right for her to expect and, and even demand the love that I owe her. The love that I promised to her. And if I betray it, she is right to feel angry, isn't she? In that sense, God is a jealous God, desiring what belongs to him, our love and affection and dependence. This may be part of the reason that God speaks through, actually, a messenger here, because a holy God must remain separate from Moses as one of the sinful creatures who has rejected and rebelled against him. And he warns him not to get too close, lest he be burned by the fire, burned by the very holiness which he wants to look. In fact, you notice that Moses hides his face. In other words, we cannot diminish the gap between us and God that really does exist. We try to diminish it. Again, diminishing God into something similar, some, like a senile grandfather. Again, who writes you too many birthday checks throughout the year, as if God's duty was to forgive, as he was more was a buddy begging for me to like him. This is not God at all. And sometimes we, we respond to this by exaggerating our own holiness. We have no problem <clears throat> asserting a holy God, but we, we don't see ourselves very clearly. We think that we, have, we deserve, again, to come into his presence, that at least we're doing better than the person next to me, that when it comes down to it, his grace, while it may be undeserved for some persons, makes more sense when it comes to me. But again, we cannot diminish this gap even as we try, that does not make God any less of a consuming fire or a threat to those who would dismiss it. God's holiness is in the same moment we need to see here, glorious and compelling and dangerous, threatening to burn us if we get too close as well. Now, we're going to nuance this plenty, but we need to understand this if we're going to understand any of the love that is demonstrated next. The thing is, again, we need this God to be a holy God, especially if there's going to be any hope for the world. You ever wish the world was different? You ever mourned and gotten angry at evil and injustice? Do you want a world where it's gone? How does that happen but with a holy God eradicating evil, consuming even death and sin? The problem is, what do I do if I rightly sense that I am actually on the wrong side of that holiness? wanting to draw near to God, and yet unable to do so without getting burned. That leads to the second point. The God who names himself. Not just the God who shows himself, but the God who names himself. Looking back at our passage, God confirms much of what we saw last week in verses 23 and 25 of chapter 2. That he has seen his people's suffering, that he has heard their cry, it has come up to him, that he knows his people and he knows their sufferings. Nothing 
of what they have or are now experiencing is lost on him. And like a father who jumps out of bed when his child screams during the night, God is going to act on behalf of them. Their cries have come up to him, and so he says he is coming down to them. Not only to deliver them from their enemies, but to deliver them to himself in a land so full of life and potential, it could be said to be flowing with milk and with honey. And perhaps as the greatest surprise of all, he is going to send Moses, the failed hero, to lead them out of it. Given what we've just seen about God's holiness, this makes it even more meaningful, I think, that a holy God would still act in such a way as to draw close to his creatures, to draw close to this nation of nobodies. Still, Moses, just as confused by this call as he is by the sight of the bush, asks not only, who am I to do something like this, but asks an even more important question, who are you? We're going to look at that second question. Actually, my friend Matt is going to be preaching next week on this, on again, Moses' own insecurity and doubt. But today, we're going to look at that second question, the most important question he asks. Who are you? Who is this God? Who exactly should I tell them is sending me to you, he says, about his people. After all, you can imagine him thinking, if I tell them that a burning bush sent me, they're going to think I spent too long hanging out in the wilderness. Who is this God that is sending me to you? It is here that God makes one of the most important and profound statements in the entire Bible, again, without exaggeration. A statement, I have to tell you, interpreters of the Bible still wrestle to understand. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am is the covenant name of God. It's actually just four letters in the Hebrew. Yod, He, Vav, He. Sometimes called the Tetragrammaton, which is sometimes pronounced Jehovah. But we, we know now that it's actually more likely to have been pronounced Yahweh. It appears 5,000 times in the Old Testament. You can recognize it, actually, every time you see the word LORD appear in all caps. In fact, one of the reasons we're not all sure, uh, not all that sure how to pronounce this name is because the earliest, uh, because the Jews uh, throughout the centuries often, the Jewish people often avoided saying the name of God, the name of the Lord out loud for fear of speaking that name in vain. In the oldest copies we actually have of the Old Testament, they put in different vowels because they didn't want to pronounce this name out loud. The vowels for Adonai, another name of God that means Lord. It's why you see Lord in your Bible. But again, we're nerding out too much. It may be that the Hebrews already knew this name, actually, and had forgotten it. After all, we see this name used in the book of Genesis. It may be they forgot this name of their God after hundreds of years living under the heavy hand of the Egyptian ones. Not even Moses knew it, who seems to need to learn as just as much as his people do about who this God is. But thinking back to Moses, do you think even Moses would have been confused? Disappointed, maybe? I am, huh? You sure that's all you're going to give me? 
Why this name, after all? This name God cho- is one that God chose for himself. And it seems to raise more questions than it answers. But I think there's at least four things going on here that I want to touch on that are found implied in this name. And we see about the nature and character of God. They are essential for understanding who he is, let alone the love he extends. And the first thing is that God is self-defining. God is self-defining. In other words, God defines himself. He does not wait for philosophers, theologians, to do so. He defines himself. D.A. Carson says, speaking of this term, God is the eternal subject. Again, God is the eternal subject. He is not someone else's object that can be categorized and defined. He is what he says he is. Or the Dutch theologian Herman Bovink wrote, God is that which he calls himself, and he calls himself that which he is. In a day where it is common, let me tell you why this matters, where to hear someone say, I get that's how you see your God, but I prefer to see my God this way. I know you see your God as a God of justice, kind of a grump if you ask me, but I prefer to see my God as a God of kindness. Your God may be exclusive, but my God sees many ways and paths to him. In a day where we try to dress up God like we might a doll, or again, we might try to swipe right or left like we would on a dating app, picking the one we prefer, it's important to say that it doesn't particularly matter how we prefer God to be. It matters who he is. After all, We shouldn't do that in any other relationship, should we? Rely on our image or what we prefer to be true about that person. If I want to grow to know my my wife, we got married again 12 years ago, almost 12 years ago, and I've been learning a lot about her ever since. If I want to grow to know my, my wife and let alone love her in return, it is not fair to her to love a version I have made up in my mind. Again, It's not fair for me to say something like to her, yes, I know, honey, you you said you would prefer for me to be at home at five, but in my mind, you said you don't particularly care when I come home. I think we get that, again, in relationships, that would not fly. Or as another example, have you ever found out that someone only liked an idealized version of you, and once they saw the real version of you, they moved on? It's painful, isn't it? When it comes to God, the most important being in the universe, it should make sense that we should want to understand him as he is, as he reveals himself to be. If we are indeed his creatures, we have to say it's profoundly arrogant to to assume we can define him. Even if there are some things about him I don't particularly understand or would have picked if it was up to me. Tim Keller puts it this way, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Isn't that true? God is self-defining, and our definition of God therefore must be on his terms. But that's not the only thing we see here. We see also that God is self-existent. God is self-existent. One of the ways to understand God's name is, in fact, to translate it, he who is. Again, what in the world does that mean? But this, what, this means, according to the Bible, that God simply is. 
From the first pages of the Bible, his existence is simply assumed. He is the great uncaused cause who owes his source and origin to no one else. He is not even self-created. He simply is. I'm not going to pretend that I understand this. In fact, I used to lay awake at night as a kid who was trying to understand things like the eternality of God. And I remember it making me sick to my stomach. I remember, this is really terrible, Lord forgive, but I remember wishing that that wasn't true so it would be easier to understand. Again, as as if my brain, when I was trying to comprehend what it means for God to simply exist, to be eternal, let alone to live eternally with him, it's as if my brain shouted back at me, does not compute, does not compute, because our imaginations can't fathom something like that. How can someone simply be and have always been? The thing is, actually, science, as much as we think explains around God, allows us to avoid God, can't avoid this tension either. Even if you trace existence of all that is back to a Big Bang, there's a question you have to ask before that. What came before that Big Bang? How did matter simply spring into existence? Has it always been there? It turns out that that isn't is just as much a leap of faith. In fact, I would argue it is more of a leap of faith than assuming that there is an intelligent cause behind it all. That is less of a leap of faith than believing matter matter simply has always been. It's less of a leap of faith to believe that there is one who simply is, who was, and will always be. God is self-existent. Third, God is self-sufficient. This is related, actually, to the last one. If God is self-existent, if he owes his source and origin to no one, if he owes his existence to no one, he depends upon no one, then, if, then everything actually owes its existence to him and depends upon him. This means, stunningly, that he needs nothing. Have you thought about that? Act 17 puts it this way. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God needs nothing, nothing that you and I certainly can offer him. I have to tell you again, there are some, maybe some of us here, who would rather this not be the case. We are more comfortable, to be honest, with a God who owes us or who can be put into our debt. Because that kind of God can be controlled. A God who does not need me, though, let alone need anything I could offer him, is a God who makes me nervous. After all, how can I be certain he will really show up for me when I need him to, if he's not in my debt? How can I assure he really will have my best interests in mind? I'll get to this more in a second, but it's actually incredible good news for us. You see, having a God who is like a vending machine, who will always give you what you want so long as you put enough coins in the slot and mash the right buttons, may be comforting to you and me on our good days, not so much on our bad. It may sound comforting to have a God who will scratch my back if I scratch his, but what happens when I don't? 
instead I do the opposite. When I'm honest with myself and I see that I have offended or rejected or simply ignored God more times than I can count. It turns out we need a God who doesn't need us. Whose love is rooted in something better than my fickle behavior and my wandering desires. As Matthew Henry observed, the greatest and best man in the world must say, by, gra- by the grace of God, I am what I am, but God a- says absolutely, and it is more than any creature, man, or angel can say, I am that I am. Then fourth, God is self-consistent. One of the ways to translate, again, God's name isn't just as I am, but I will be, meaning that God will always be what he is right now. He is unchangeable. The $10 word for that, if you're looking for it, I'll give you 50 cents in conversation. Actually, don't come for me. I don't have that much money. The, uh, is immutable. Immutable is the $10 word for that, and James chapter 1 summarizes what this means. In verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, we never need to worry about God waking up on the wrong side of the bed to like us, or somehow changing his mind at random. He does not develop or mature. He does not have any parts of himself that he is working on right now. God is what he was and what he always will be. Consider the other way that God reveals himself in this chapter when he speaks of who he is and introduces his name. What does he say? How does he introduce himself to Moses at first? He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. As we mentioned last week, this is referring back to magnificent promises that were once made to Israel now hundreds of years ago. Given to their forefathers, first to Abraham, then passed to Isaac, and then to Jacob. Promises to love and to keep his people, to make from this man who had no children at the time a nation that was great, that would be a blessing to all peoples, to, to have that people to be his people, and he would be their God. Incredible promises. And what he's saying in this verse, then, is that he is that God still. Hundreds of years after the fact, when only they, when they met with silence from God and their worst fears seemed to confirm that he had moved on or somehow changed, he has not forgotten them, and he will never change. He is that same God today as he was yesterday and will be tomorrow. Friend, do you derive comfort from that? No matter what challenge you face, no matter how much the circumstances in your life will change, no matter how much the roller coaster of life moves on and on and on, your God will never change. He will always be a good God to you. And think of all, how all these things are actually pictured, I think, in the fire itself. Perhaps one of the reasons it's such a fantastic picture of God's nature and presence. A fire, first, that defies betrays all descriptions Moses would come up with. God is a self-defining one. A fire that simply exists and does not rely on any fuel to burn it. A God who is self-existent and self-sufficient. 
and a fire that, so long as it does not depend upon any bush to burn, will go on burning, ever bright, never dimming. God is self-consistent. Always will be what he is. Again, what could be a better picture of the infinite power of a God, of our God, breaking through history? What could be a better picture of the self-denying, I mean, sorry, defining, that's key, self-defining, self-existing, self-sustaining, and self-consistent nature of God? Before Moses, importantly, would be sent to do anything for God, he needs to hear from God what this God is like. He needs to see and know this God if he is ever going to be obedient in the calling God gives, because what God is going to ask of him is way beyond Moses' capacities. To succeed in being called into God's service, he needed to know the ultimately unknowable God, whose power and nature did not need Moses at all, and yet, like a conduit, uses Moses to work wonders, to bring glory, to show off in power. Someone who is as much of a failure as Moses. Still, we have not answered that question that I left hanging before. Even if God was to rescue his people as he promised, how is it that a holy God could manifest his holy presence among that kind of people without consuming them like the Egyptians? Again, notice the effects of the fire of God when it comes against Pharaoh and his people. How do we know that same kind of wrath will not come against his own people, especially when they prove, let's be honest, just as fickle as us? Think of this in terms of the bush, actually. After all, it will make a distinction. The burning bush is not the appearance of God's presence, right? The bush has, is really only the conduit. It is the flame of fire through which God manifests his glory. The bush is simply the object that is set ablaze, in which the glory burns. How is it that God's glory, his holiness, could burn among them, in other words, like the bush, without consuming them in the process? How is it possible that he might make of them like this bush, an even more powerful display of his nature and glory, something that might burn even brighter for his fame. All of this actually looks forward to the New Testament and to the one who surprisingly claims this title for himself, the title that every Jew would avoid saying in a sentence, definitely not ending a sentence this way, hesitated before bringing God's name on their lips so that they would not bring him any dishonor, in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This claim is incredible. And I have to tell you, it's really concerning if it's not true. Jesus, in a sense, understood and claimed to be the great fulfillment of of all of these promises, the self-defining, self-existing, self-sustaining, self-consistent God and human flesh. He says, you want to know the great I am? Here he is, walking among you. You want to see where my power comes from? It comes from that kind of God. I am the great I am. Again, it is wonderful, an incredible kind of promise, and really concerning if it is not true. If it is not true, you shouldn't hear a word that he has to say. But if it is true, friends... Much more is going on in his life and in his work than perhaps you have ever dared to imagine. The great I am who brought God's holiness near to us in an even better way than a burning bush. Who joined the all glory of God 
the divine, a divine nature in human form. Fully God, fully man, according to Philippians 2. Again, who took on the form of a servant. Again, though having the glory of the infinite God, the one who Colossians 1 refers to as the image of the invisible God, or John 1, as he puts it, the creating God, the word who was there at the very beginning, took on flesh and dwelt among us. His audience didn't miss certainly what Jesus was claiming. In fact, in verse 59 of John chapter 8, it tells us they picked up stones to stone him, which Jesus miraculously escaped. It says simply in that passage, I think, that he hid himself, and you have to wonder how in the world did he hide himself, one of the many questions in the Bible that are not, not, are not answered for us. It's one of the reasons, actually, this claim is one of the reasons that Jesus is sentenced to death for blasphemy. After all, wh what kind of man could claim to be God? Ironically, though, Jesus does not try to circle back the claim. He knows exactly what he is saying. He never tries to clarify or clean it up. In fact, earlier in that chapter, in the same chapter in John chapter 8, John, Jesus tells them something extraordinary. He says that his death on the cross, which he was aware of and was heading towards with intention, his cross would in fact prove that he was the I am. John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Again, this reference, when he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, this is a clear reference to his own crucifixion, being lifted up on the cross. But then he says, you will know that I am he. Actually, this phrase could also be translated, and I think John means it to have two meanings, to have kind of a hidden wink meaning, where he says here, then you will know that I am. How could this be true? That through the cross of all things, Jesus would demonstrate that he is the great I am. Isn't this the act of ultimate powerlessness and defeat? How could this be true? Because we see the great tension here in Exodus 3 finally and fully resolved. Because only through the cross is Jesus being fully God, perfectly holy. On the cross, Jesus nonetheless faces the full justice of that holy God that is due for our sin. As Jesus experiences in full the wrath again of a holy God poured out on him in full. Only as Jesus, in a sense, goes through hell for us, can God's holiness finally come to us without consuming us in the process. A point he proved in his resurrection from the grave, proving the sentence has been paid, the wrath has been outpoured, the payment has been received, the fires which consumed his life could go out forever for those whose faith, whose trust is in him. As Jesus warns them in the same chapter, again in John chapter 8, verse 24, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, again here in that I am, you will die in your sins. What is Jesus saying, again, is the great solution to a holy God burning amidst his people in all its glory without consuming them. 
only as Jesus felt the full and fiery wrath in our place. It is even more wonderful, actually, if you can believe it, that through Jesus, the great I am, we not only can escape the wrath of God, as the Bible pictures here, but actually be even more of a brilliant sign than the burning bush is of, the, of God's shining display of his own glory. God promises that those who actually, whose faith is in him, who he works among, his spirit is actually present among, shining forth in a way that catches the whole world off guard. It's perhaps why in Acts chapter 2, when the spirit falls on the disciples, how does it fall? In flames, in tongues of fire. Again, God's spirit at work in an incredible display, getting himself glory rather than us, only as us only as conduits of his own eternal power. God, by his spirit, can make something mysterious, supernatural, supernatural and disruptively compelling through your life, if your faith is in him, and through our community. Do you believe that's God's purposes when he says that he has created a home for himself here? That this is the temple of the living God, his people. That God's presence rests upon us and shines out from among us as we love him and love others. That God, again, is creating something mysterious, supernatural, disruptively compelling in and through this very community. How? Only if, like Moses, we are compelled by the same glory. And when we encounter his holiness, we recognize that it should consume us. Instead, in hoping in what Jesus has accomplished and allow him to define himself and through faith in God's Son submit our lives to him in a sense to be set on fire for his glory. Lord, we come to you as those who comprehend so little of your nature and character. I, I just feel my limits even in this short time this morning. I pray that we would give our lives to studying and hearing and taking seriously what you have said about yourself and awaiting the day where we will see you face to face. A wonderful, mysterious God who is not like us and that is so good and yet has drawn near to us. Ultimately, in Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, the great I am, who has given us all the proof we need that we can trust a holy and perfect God who can blaze among us in a way that brings you only fame. Lord, would you do so in such a disruptively compelling way? Again, drawing many to worship your son. We pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Friends, God calls us all to